Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Writing to Get Business podcast, where you'll get tips to expand your writing skills. Every week, you'll hear tips and strategies to support your writing. Pat Iyer is your show hostess, a ghostwriter, editor, and author who has written 48 books. Sit back, relax, and listen. Here's your hostess, Pat Iyer. Hi, this is Pat Iyer with Writing to Get Business podcast. Amy Wilson is with me today, who we met through a mutual joint venture organization. Amy and I have been chatting about her book, which is launching this week. So this is a happy birthday week to Amy with the fruits of all of her effort, her editing and her writing have come together now this week. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Amy, let's start first of all with what is the title of your book? What is it about? Yeah, so the title of my book is called Empathy for Change, How to Create a More Understanding World. Um, And so this idea uh, of, I essentially am bringing two pieces of who I am into this book and my, the work that I've done in my career. So first of all is the empathy side, which I am in, um, empathy is my biggest strength. Um, empathy, I'm an empath, right? And I'm also a highly sensitive person, which is uh, a way that like all the senses that I have are heightened. So I see things in different ways than other people do. Um, and so my career has been a lot about, you know, building empathy and, and consulting in uh, other circumstances as well. And on the other side is change and innovation. So I've sat in this place um, as a director of innovation in many circumstances in the private sector, worked at Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, the management consulting firm, and designed um, what we call the building a culture of innovation movement. Um, but then I served from 2015, 2015 to um, 2018 um, for the White House under two administrations. So I worked in, um, uh, in the, started in the Obama administration. And so I got to be an entrepreneur in residence for them. And so I eventually became the director of innovation.gov and created a movement of change called the Better Government Movement in the federal government. Um, and about 5,000 people joined that. So I'm, I'm a change maker and I'm embracing that, but I'm also kind of taking the lessons that I've learned from building major movements in government, in the private sector, and even in the nonprofit sector and bringing it into the work that I do. Oh, I want to pull that apart a little bit if you would go with me. (laughs) First of all, you said you were an empath and a highly sensitive person. Are those the same thing? There actually, there's a slight difference between the two of them. And I'm glad you asked because I actually put this in um, context in one of my chapters because I kind of do the background of this because in a way, some people are predisposed to uh, to doing different things. So like there's the big difference between being an empath and being empathetic 
um, is, is really like that inherent nature. So empath is this, essentially this feeling that you are feeling a feeling with somebody as if you're feeling it yourself. So it's something that um, they, they find that people with who are empaths have this, they call this a mirror neuron system. So we have these neurons that as humans, we want to connect with other people. And so people who are, are empaths actually have a more enhanced mirror neuron system. So they, they want to connect and they actually can't stop connecting, right? So they're very present with them. So it's very inherent, but empathy is actually something that is, um, research has shown that is a, ch is a choice that people make and it's also a learned trait. So I empathy is my biggest strength because I grew up in a lot of really interesting circumstances that led me to have empathy and but at the same time, you can learn it and you can grow it. I'm thinking about those pictures and it may be something that I saw or read. Maybe it was in the emotional intelligence readings that I did of you could take a class of kids in kindergarten and one girl falls down and, and skins her knee. Mm -hmm. And the girl next to her is crying because her friend is crying. But then the girl in the other part of the room is looking at that and saying, you know, like, what's the big deal? It's not my knee, so mm. why would I cry? Yeah, yeah. Is the girl who's crying for her friend, is that person an empath or is that person who feels empathy? Hmm. Yeah, so the person who's crying when her friend has skinned her knee would be an empath, right? So that's when they, they're like, oh man, I feel that for you, right? Empathy is feeling with somebody and not for someone. Right. So if you're on the other side of the, of the room and you're not even, you know, saying, oh, like, that's not me, like, that's not my my problem. Right. That is you're not even showing empathy. Right. That is that is um, and that is even not even showing sympathy. Right. Because sympathy is the feeling for. And then that makes you feel like you're lesser than empathy brings connection. Empathy builds, you know, this belief that I'm here with you. Right. Rather than for you. So. So yeah, that's, that's the difference between that kind of scenario you showed me there. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I appreciate that clarification. Of course, yeah. And then the highly sensitive personality part, how does that fit in? What does that mean? Yeah, so um, HSPs or highly sensitive people was a, is a term that was created in the 90s from Dr. Elaine Aaron. Um, it's interesting, I was born in the 80s. So I didn't actually, I, I really had a hard time because I could see that like, if I'm, if loud noises really affect me, right? L um, really bright light really affects me. Going on roller coasters is like, can you just imagine like if you're highly sensitive, all of these feelings, right? I once went to a roller coaster and I was in shock after I did the roller coaster because my entire body just didn't know what to do with itself, right? And I, I like to say that being a highly sensitive person is like being, having a world of technicolor, right? It's like, you know, the, you know, it's like when you walk out, when you're in Wizard of Oz, right? You go from being black and white and everything is bright around mm -hmm. you. So that is my, that has been my experience in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, I feel things differently and I think feel things very deeply sometimes, but that is something that I've had to learn to, to kind of harness and, and understand myself a lot more um, as I've done this, uh, as I've done this work and did my own internal work too. 
when you talk about a roller coaster, it makes me think of a trip I took on a roller coaster with my son when he was probably about, I would guess he's probably five. We went on the Magic Mountain roller coaster in Disney World or Disneyland, one of the two. And it's a roller coaster in the dark with lots of noise and flashing and very disorienting. I also consider myself to be a highly sensitive person. And what I remember is that partway through the roller coaster, the force of the centrifugal force threw him against me. His back of his head hit my face and drove my glasses into my nose, which is always a sensation if you wear glasses that you would not want to replicate. And I remember coming off of that roller coaster thinking that was the longest ride I have ever had in my life. It may have lasted five minutes or 10 minutes at the most, but it was so distressing if you're sensitive to the kinds of stimuli that are present on a roller coaster in the dark. So for anyone listening who considers themselves an HSP, don't do the roller coaster in the dark deal. Yes. (laughs) And there's a lot of other things you shouldn't do too. So, but we can talk more about that later. (laughs) (laughs) You have all this experience in the area of empathy and innovation. Tell our listener how you pulled this all together to come up with the idea for your book. And first of all, is this your first book, the one that's being born this week? (laughs) Yes. And I love how you say birthed, like this birthing, because I want to say that it's like I'm birthing this thing because I don't have any children myself, but it's like, this is what the thing I've been building and it's a toddler now. And now I'm like putting it out in the world. I'm birthing this thing. So I love that. Um, So this is my first book, um, but I, in my past experience, I have written a lot of things uh, for the White House, um, like things for the impact of open data um, in the Obama White House. I, at Booz Allen, I wrote the Innovation Playbook. Um, so like, what what are the ways that we're going to spread this kind of innovative culture across the entire firm? Um, at Booz, at, um, at the, um, as a Presidential Innovation Fellow, that Entrepreneur in Residence in the White House, I um, am the Director of Innovation.gov, I um, co-wrote, we, we wrote a bunch of uh, different research that's out there as well. Um, and also what on innovation.gov, we had a toolkit and a playbook and a lot of other things. And I'm also um, a technology policy fellow. Um, uh, I have like lot, wear many different hats as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. I'm a technology policy fellow with the Aspen Institute. Um, and last year, Um, what that is, is like, you're like a policy entrepreneur as well. So you think about how do we tackle policy in new and inventive ways to solve some of our biggest challenges in the world? Um, so I got the question about like, okay, this is a new, new book. Um, the other part of the question, can you remember, um, yes. What led you to decide to write the book? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, a couple things. Um, so I, being an empath, being um, having empathy, I realized that the in the world there is not a ton of empathy. There's a lot of dysfunctional workplaces, a lot of dysfunction that's happening in our culture and society today, like things like you know capitalism and um, you know narcissism that shows up in our leaders. And um, one one in, thing in particular which was a catalyst for me to go on a personal journey of self-exploration was 
when I was working in the most recent administration um, at the White House, I was having a lot of difficulty um, kind of understanding the vision of what um, this, the Office of American Innovation wanted to do. I had created innovation.gov and in this movement, it was a very big grassroots movement. But then what, what they wanted to do was to kind of um, turn this into like having um, deep impact, right? Um, deeper impact of how going into an agency um, and the federal government and being able to transform the agency from the top down, or like this is like the bottom up. But um, my, my philosophy was, open, participatory, and peer-driven. So it's like more bottom-up. It's like culture happens because of a movement and not a mandate. Um, and that's that's a lot of the work that I did. But also um, when I go into the that administration, it, it really showed that they believe in a different value system completely. <laughs> I kind of knew that deep down inside, but I go into a meeting and uh, trying to understand what their vision is in that meeting. Um, and I was stepping into this new role, like I said, to um, create like um, uh, a repeatable plan for 21st century government um, and go into agencies and to transform them from the ground up. And I was called the center of excellence around transformation. And in that role, um, I was starting to create kind of like shared language and um, of like innovation for, for new, new organizations. So I go into this meeting with the people from the Office of American Innovation. And in that meeting, they stop me mid-sentence when I'm trying to talk. And they say, you know what? You're thinking about everything wrong. You need to think about how do you fit into what we're doing? And I was like, I... <laughs> like I'm sitting here and I'm like, there's a ton of people who are like standing behind me that are, are like lots of public servants that are here that believe in what we're doing. And yet this person at the top is, is share is like essentially squashing this, this belief. Um, and then by the end of that meeting, they said, you work for me and you work for this president. Um, so for me, that was a whole um, kind of world that was, um, kind of like opened up to me and it was like, what happened? It was like in, after that meeting occurred, um, I ended up, um, you know, getting fired from my position. Um, I ended up getting, uh, in the experience, I ended up getting fired. I ended up getting, um, innovation.gov was taken down in retaliation. Um, and then finally I was told I could never convene the better government movement again. And so professionally that was hard. Personally, it was hard. It was really, really difficult time. And so I decided after that time to take a sabbatical. And in the middle of that sabbatical in 20, this happened, that all that happened like in 2018. So in 2019, um, I decided to take this time to recover, to understand what happened. And that is what ended up um, led that journey led me to write this book in the middle of 2019. So I started it then. And then I finished editing the book during the pandemic, which was completely cathartic for me because mm -hmm. I just needed to get my thoughts down on paper. So I'm mm -hmm. gonna see what's happening in the world. And did you find another position in the public sector or the governmental sector or the private sector in, in the year 2020? Yeah, so in 2020, I ended up uh, working mostly as I worked as a technology policy fellow um, in the Aspen Institute. Um, so in a way I was working with Aspen and, and uh, 
you know, doing a project for the first three months of the year. I usually live in Washington, DC, but I was in San Francisco. So I moved to San Francisco on New Year's Eve of 2019 mm-hmm. <laughs> and to bring in the new year. Um, unbeknownst to us, we thought a pa- we didn't know the pandemic was coming. So I was in San Francisco for the first three months of uh, 2020 um, to do the in-person component of my fellowship. And then when I came back um, to the East Coast where I live, uh, I was finishing up the Aspen program and then I finished writing my book in 2020. All right. Yeah. I understand from talking with you before we began recording that you did some interviews with people to create the content for the book. Can you tell our listener what that process was like? How did you select the people? How did that interviewing process work out for you? Yeah. um, So at the time when I decided to write this book, I was saying, okay, I realized that I want to create a more empathetic world. And I just, you know, I wanted to create a more empathetic world and I wanted to get people who were leading change through empathy. And that's, that's kind of, I just put it out in my social network and I said, you know what, I'm starting this journey of writing a book. Um, And so I'm really curious, who do you think in your world has the most empathy? And who, who else, um, you know, who's leading change? And like, I started also defining for me what, what that means, right? What does empathy and change, what does that intersection mean? So um, I had a couple of people that I had in my life that I knew I wanted to do, but the vast majority of people who showed up in this were like, were just people that uh, I had found through that, that experience, that journey of reaching out to my, my colleagues and the people that I knew on social media. So. You know, as you talk about the concept of, of empathy and change, it makes me think of how different the results are of change if you factor in empathy and you help people and involve people and listen to them and ask their opinions versus if you don't have empathy and you say, this is the way it's gonna be done. I'm pointing at the camera if you're watching this on video, if you're listening to it, this is the way it's being done. I'm pointing at Amy's head and Amy is pulling back a little bit instinctively like, I don't think so. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, you could try that, but I'm not going along with that. Yeah. Can you share some insights about how you linked these concepts together and what are the outcomes that you discuss in your book for change that factors in empathy and change that is missing that ingredient? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I think one of the, a a wonderful thing that I just happened this week in launch was uh, I just published an article in Forbes magazine, which was, was lovely about, about this exact thing that like, when you, when empathy is not present, we feel it, right? As, as people, like as humans, because it's such a human thing for us. It's like when we feel, we know we're not having empathy, we feel it, but most people don't understand what empathy really means and what it means to be empathetic, right? Um, and so what I tried to go down was this path is trying to link the two um, is, is number one is that we're kind of, we have this, you know, you dive into empathy, there's three, actually three kinds of empathy. If you look at the front of my book, there's uh, a head, a heart, and a hand. 
And that's like a, a theme that, that kind of uh, is shown throughout the book because I want to make it a little bit more visceral for people to be like, it is not just thinking about somebody. This is called cognitive empathy, the brain, right? And I'm pointing to my head for those who are listening elsewhere. Um, so that's called cognitive empathy. That's the kind of empathy that is like, I am able to take your perspective, right? That's like where the choice comes in, right? And and the what's interesting with cognitive empathy is that we will only have empathy for people that we truly value. So if, you, if you're not valuing a person and that the people has dignity deep down inside, you're not actually going to have empathy for them, which is a very important thing for us to, 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 to point out. The second one is um, emotional or affective empathy. That's where I'm, which is where the heart is. It's where I'm here to emotionally connect with you. And that requires you to understand your feelings in relation to another person. And the third one is the hand. And that's called compassionate empathy or simply compassion. And that is where you are listening to somebody, you feel their feelings, and then you're willing to help if needed. But what I have found is really fascinating by that is like, you're willing to help if needed, but it's not telling you to help, right? It's not, there's no action that's actually happening. So uh, as I was diving into these definitions and kind of talking about the head, the heart, the hand, and in that con that idea, I was like, there's something missing. So also I've been building cultures of empathy and I mean, cultures of empathy and innovation, you know, because of being an empathetic person, I build cultures of empathy, right? Um, but I also do not like the word innovation, <laughs> even though I do use it. I've been the director of innovation for more than a decade for things, um, but it is a meaningless word. <laughs> it just is like, I'm gonna be innovative here. I'm gonna be doing this until you put like real meat behind it. And so when I thought about this, I thought about innovation really means that we're trying to make something better, right? It's positive change. And then I, then I have this equation that I have in my book called change equals empathy plus action. So it's having those things, being there in presence with, with that person, being there with them, but then acting upon that. And that's, that's actually how the whole book kind of unfolded. Um, from there, the, there's three parts of the book. The first part is our empathy deficit. So I lay the... I make a case for the deficit that we have as a country. Um, and this is actually a term that President Barack Obama first mentioned in 2006. Um, and so I kind of talk about that um, dysfunctional workplaces, a lot of other places that are happening in our world. The second piece is learning empathy for change. So what are the, the components that people need to understand so that you can switch and change and shift power and agency to people who are, you know, in a lot of ways might be oppressed in this society or need to have empathy given to them. And then the third piece is empathy in action. So this is where I'm, I've talked to organizations, I kind of outline a startup, an established organization about like, this is how they're applying empathy or redefining themselves with empathy at the heart. And I also have a chapter at the end, which is about the coronavirus and how both change and empathy has been ever present during our journey here in the pandemic. And it's shaping things faster than we ever thought was possible. 
it's something I hadn't thought about at all was how empathy is affected by the virus. I think about the social isolation and recognition of the impact of that and how that has added a layer of stress. Um, I was just talking with an attorney and a nurse last evening about the opioid crisis and about how the, the social isolation is fueling opioid use and opioid use is becomes too expensive for addicts after a while. And then they move to heroin because heroin is a lot less expensive mm -hmm. per dose than $30 for a pill of whatever on the street. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are spiraling and causing social and family and, and economic impacts. Mm -hmm. One aspect of the virus that you might not have been thinking about, I hadn't been thinking about it either until he tied it in for me. And he said, you know, you're not, before the, the COVID pandemic, we put a lot of emphasis on the opioid crisis. Now it's gone underground, but it's larger than it ever was before. Mm -hmm. I have thought about that actually. Mm. That because um, so as, as part of my story, my father, I think I told you about this before we started recording here, but my father was um, uh, an alcoholic and an, and an addict in parts of it, many parts of his life. And he just had this addictive personality. And so um, as part of the journey that I've been on, I'm actually more predisposed to addiction myself and mental health. There was a lot of mental health issues that my father was having too. So I have struggled with, and I have been diagnosed with like co um, complex PTSD um, with anxiety and depression. And that shows up in a myriad of ways in my life, but it has led me to go down the path of not feeling loved, not feeling connected to people. Not feeling, um, not feeling like I belong in this world. In to tell, to be frank, right? And so, um, so I've gone through a personal journey with this. I've seen other people in my life go through addiction. I've gone through my own addictions that I've had to deal with in various ways. And, um, pardon me. Um, but so I, I see that, and I have thought about that deeply about addiction. And that what is the heart of addiction is the lack of connection in many different ways. A lot of people do talk about that is that you're not connected. You don't feel like you have purpose in life, you know, all of these things that like, and I think is a representative of the larger society, really, you know, not giving us the opportunities and fulfilling our personal and in, in, internal needs. And isn't that a paradox, Amy, because the act of taking a substance that impairs your ability to relate to people as you drift off into a um, high blood alcohol level or you drift away mentally after injecting yourself or swallowing substances, you cut yourself off from people even further. Yeah, that's, that's what was interesting is that, you know, when I saw my father take, you know, drink alcohol, it was, it's self-medication, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's separate. You, you, um, I found this and I also found this when my life, I was numbing out because I didn't like the life I was living. And, 
And that, that is just like terrible place to be. Right. And when I think about this, um, like my own struggles and then other people's struggles, I realize that like, we're all hurting collectively hurting, but we don't have an outlet for us to, to be able to process what is happening or had happened to us in the past. Um, and that's where in my book, I talk also about, I'm very frank about finding this, this organization called Adult Children of Alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a 12 step program, but it's more less steeped in like God and religion, but more on like trusting that realize trusting a higher power and I, and you know, that a higher power is going to lead us to, um, kind of like, you know, a better place, right. The universe I talk about, right. That, that like, I'm going to get better over time. And it's about learning that realizing that when you're in a, a home that is full of, um, addiction of about, um, alcoholism, it's a family disease. So you're all affected by it and you learn, distinct things that happen to you and you bring that into adulthood. And that's why it's called adult children of alcoholics. And you're bringing this into adulthood, but it's very, it's not very great ways of living in the world to tell you the truth. You're, it's very maladaptive. So Mm -hmm. I have spent a lot of my career doing, being a workaholic or being, um, eating, overeating or doing all these things because I was coping with, with the hurt that I was feeling inside. So, um, so, so the, the great thing is, is that after I found adult children of alcoholics was that moment where I'm like in a community where people see me and I am heard and I can talk about what's happening and that I blossomed after that. Right. I have, Mm -hmm. I have a, we, we call them sponsors just like in alcoholics anonymous, but my sponsor, I talk to her every week and it's just, it's incredible to see the kind of growth that you can have when you have a relationship like that, where it's like, I've been on that journey with you, right? I've been on that journey before. I'm here to help you along with your journey, right? And it's not just about your career, it's about your life. So um, yeah, it's just, it's incredible like how just a span of, I started doing that in 2015, right? Mm -hmm. Right about the time when I had nervous breakdown at Booz Allen. And then I came back and, worked, uh, in, in the white house. So since 2015, my world has completely shifted. <laughs> so it's been <laughs> it sure sounds like it. <laughs> my goodness. Talk about changes. <laughs> yes. I am. That's central to my being. <laughs> well, I'd like to ask you, um, one last question before we wrap up and, and that is, can you give us a, a quick overview? You talked about this is your launch week. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to what you've done to launch your book. And then my last question will be, how can our listener find out more about you, your services, and where to buy your book? Okay. So what's the first part of the question? Again, I want to make sure I get that right. The launch week. What are you doing this week to launch the book? Yeah. So, I mean, we're still in a pandemic. So a lot of the stuff is a lot of virtual stuff. And I'm also living on the East coast and it's been snowing a lot recently. So it's kind of cold. So not like I can just like have an outside book signing for people. So, (laughs) but I do plan on having one in the spring. Um, So what that has entailed was doing a lot of things virtually, right? Having pod, doing podcasts, doing talks. Um, I think I've done, this is probably my sixth or seventh podcast in the past few weeks. 
Um, and I have many of them, two of them came out yesterday, for example, I didn't know that they were going to come out the same day. Um, but I also tomorrow, if anybody is interested, I don't know if this is actually being probably recorded, you know, not out before then, but I'm doing a um, live stream with a friend of mine who's going to be interviewing me and is kind of more like a, um, um, interesting session. And then I did a live stream on Wednesday to talk about the book and celebrate with one of my best friends, who's a stand-up comedian and a storyteller. Um, so we had, and we were testing out live stream because I just got accepted into LinkedIn live. Um, so I've just been going on social media. So to, to bring it into like how to get in touch with me, I am active on all things like Facebook, LinkedIn, um, also on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I post on those every day, pretty much multiple times a day this week because of everything. So um, you can reach me there, but you can also go to empathyforchange.com. That will direct you to my personal website where you can learn more about me, my services, you know, my journey. And I have a publication on Medium called Empathy for Change. And um, I been writing um, pretty much every other day, um, snippets from my book or things that came up for like example, um, on uh, Martin Luther King's day, I did a thing honoring MLK and the journey that they had to do to actually have MLK day, which is a fascinating story. Um, so you can find me in all those places. And um, I'm on Amazon. The book is on Amazon and anywhere else books are sold, Barnes and Noble, bookshop. Um, you know, uh, other places too, like, um, you know, and then once we can actually come in person to independent bookshops um, or any kind of bookshops, um, it will be available everywhere too. Oh, and also an overdrive. So libraries, it's available in your library. So if you go into your online in your library, you can actually download it um, as well. But I would suggest you might want to download it and give a review. It would be great to have you read it and do a review on Amazon for us to get the word out. And I would, one thing I will ask, which is the last thing I'll say, is if you can, you know, pass along this podcast or just some information about to like five people that would love to hear this message or need to hear this message, I would be eternally grateful. So that'd be helpful. Thank you. Well, thank you, Amy. I've been talking with Amy Wilson. This is Pat Iyer discussing her book that was born this week, Empathy for Change. I would echo Amy in requesting that you tell other people who are interested in writing books or who have written books about the podcast because we love to be able to share the knowledge of our authors with our audience. And be sure to come back next week or click on down for the next interview, the next guest in which we're talking about writing to get business. Hello, my name is Troy Broussard and I just wanted to reach out and personally thank Pat Iyer for all the help she's been for me on editing a couple of my books. Now, I'm a constant content creator. I'm always writing a book. In fact, I'm working on three of them right now. And it's nice to have someone that can be that second set of eyes, right? I'm a pilot. It's nice to have a co-pilot. <laughs> and Pat has always been my co-pilot. She is the go-to person that I reach out to each and every time I need to have my books edited to make sure that my voice is consistent, to make sure that the facts are checked right. She found a recent fact error that was just a 
a faux pas on my part. I quoted the wrong person. I had to, you know, a reference to somebody else in my mind, and it was an incorrect quote. And she caught that, saved me public embarrassment as I release a book with a crucial piece of factual data, uh, accidentally, but erroneous, right? And that's what I enjoy about Pat. She keeps the writing in my voice, which is very important to me. And it's funny because in the last edit that she did for me, she said, there's a lot of testosterone in there. I softened it up a little bit and I joke and I laugh because I'll probably put a little bit of that back <laughs> and that's okay. But Pat does an awesome job of keeping my voice, letting my voice and my style come through in my content, but editing it and polishing it up and cleaning it up so that my users can engage more with it. Now, Hopefully, you already believe in the power of books. I have a best-selling book that has made me hundreds of thousands of dollars in the last four or five years. And so, to me, writing is extremely powerful, but it takes that co-pilot. I need that person to just take the edge off of my rough copy and cleaning it up and polishing it up. So, you know, for all of your editing needs or book writing needs, uh, I won't, I don't turn anywhere else into Pat Iyer and I would recommend you do the same. You can find her on her website at patiyer.com and the last name is Iyer, I as in island, Y-E-R, Pat Iyer. So that's all I really have to say. Find that perfect co-pilot for you and talk to Pat today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for writers at writingtogetbusiness.com. That is W-R-I-T-I-N-G-T-O-G-E-T-B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S dot com. Coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs work with Pat so they can get more business by writing and sharing their expertise. Check out Pat's resources on writingtogetbusiness.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.